Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much. You have blessed us with so much, Father. You've given us uh, life. You've given, uh, you've given us plenty to eat. You've put us in a great place, Lord. And uh, Father, pray that you will open our eyes to your word. Father, open, open our hearts to the teachings of Jesus. Help us to have his, his heart and, uh, and, and his attitude and his life. Help us to see the scriptures clearly today. Uh, Father, I pray that you will uh, show me the things in this lesson that I need to repent and, and change and, and re-examine my own life too, Father. Uh, we, we, uh, this, this is uh, a study we do together, Father. We pray that, uh, that you can use it for your own purposes. And uh, Father, please help us to get out of our, our lives and our way, whatever obstacles stand in the way of doing what you want us to do. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, I'll be honest with you, it's, it's, uh, it's very humbling and sobering to be up here teaching this lesson. Um, I have so many old friends that are here in the room that uh, uh, it's wonderful to see. And also because there are so many people I know in this room, and even more that I don't know, who really have exhibited for years great hearts and great sacrifice to help, to help the poor and needy. So I... Uh, God knows who you are, and he loves and appreciates that very much. So it's, it's, it's very, very humbling to do that. The title of this lesson is Spherical Obstacles to serve the, uh, Serving the Poor and Needy. And uh, some of you at the end of the lesson are going to say Chuck didn't stick to his title here because we're going to spend most of the time talking about one obstacle. We will talk about others as well. But I thought if I only have a one shot, let's go for the uh, let's go for the heart here. This this is let's go for the thing that the Bible talks the most about. So while this this may or may not apply to you personally, but this may be a message that God wants you to hear and, and to study to take it to those around you and take it to the rest of the church. I don't know, but we'll look at we'll look at several uh, passages of Scripture today. And uh, Jesus says that you have one teacher, the Christ, and you're all brothers. So we're all sitting at the table, all wrestling with the scriptures together this morning. If I was going to ask you, what do you think in the church is the biggest obstacle to helping the poor? Why we're raising $40,000 instead of $400,000 or $4 million. What is it that's the biggest obstacle? That, uh, that we have uh, 200 people here instead of, of maybe more than that. What is it that holds people back? Because they're, they're, they're different things. And I think if we, we take a good look at it, I think most of us would say the single biggest obstacle in people's lives in America, American Christianity, is love of money, love of pleasure, love of self. Okay? That's the biggest obstacle to really helping the poor in a massive and significant way, I think, overall. Now, there, there are different reasons, that there are other reasons that are going to affect people. Some people are going to be in a situation where just they just can't. They're just struggling to, to make ends meet in their own lives, or you have elderly parents you have to take care of, or you just don't know what to do. You just don't know what your talents are, how you can help other people. But I would say, I would say overall, this is probably the biggest thing. And this is actually something Jesus talked a lot about. So if we want to look at the Bible, that's a, a great place to start, I think. 
I really appreciate the spirit of the church that we are serious about following the Word of God, whatever it says. I appreciate the restoration attitude. I remember the London Church of Christ many years ago that Doug was talking about leading the way and saying, hey, this is a part of the Scriptures that we need to put into practice. So I, I, really, I really appreciate that spirit, and I hope that we can take it even higher. So I want to talk about the heart, about what it really means to love God. Matthew chapter 22, let's start there. Now, this is, they drive people nuts. I've spent half my Christian life out of the, reading out of the NIV and half reading out of the New King James. I have two Bibles up here. I have no idea which one I'm going to turn to. But if it doesn't sound familiar, you can guess which version it is. Matthew chapter 22. Starting in verse 35. He's talking about the Sadducees. It says, Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So, when Jesus says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, what does that mean? Well, rather than me tell you what I think it means, let's look at the passage in context. This was in the the previous message. Uh, Actually, whether you realize it or not, that came out of Leviticus chapter 19. So I want to read the whole passage that that comes out of the second greatest commandment. Leviticus chapter 19. What does God have in mind when He says to love our neighbor as ourselves? This is a passage, depending on which translation you're reading, there are either 10 or 15, thou shalt not or do not, and then it all concludes with one, but do this. So, as, as a counterpoint, and I want to think about where he starts. Leviticus 19, starting in verse 9. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. And you shall not glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather every grape from your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely. You shall not profane the name of of your God, I am the Lord. You shall not cheat your neighbor or rob him. The wages of him who hired shall not remain with you all night until morning. You shall not curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind. But shall fear your God, I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. In righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go about as a talebearer among your people, nor shall you take a stand against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. 
You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and do not bear, uh, do not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So loving your neighbor encompasses a lot of things. He doesn't talk about warm, fuzzy feelings here. He talks about what you're doing, how you live your life, how you treat other people, what you do to them. And the first two things he mentions on this list of the things you don't do, as opposed to loving your neighbor, is taking care of the poor and those who are hungry and those who are in need. So he talks about taking care of the poor, those who are hungry, the blind, the deaf, those who are without power. That's all part of loving your neighbor as yourself. So this, the idea of loving your neighbor as yourself, this isn't just having warm feelings for other people. This is doing something with your life, putting it into practice. Let's turn to Luke chapter 3. John the Baptist is preparing the way for Jesus. Start reading in verse 7. He came out to the multitudes that came to be baptized by him. Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bring fruits worthy of repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham even from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown to the fire. It's a fiery message. Now, Jesus said in Luke chapter 7 that John the Baptist, he said, of all those born of women, of all the prophets, none was greater than John the Baptist. Think about that. That's Elijah and Jeremiah and and prophet Daniel, all these great, and Moses, he says John the Baptist was greater than all of them. What makes John so great? This, the message that he's preaching is a scorching message of repentance. I want to go down and read in verses 15 to 17. He's preparing people for the coming of the Christ. Verse 15, he says, Now as the people were in expectation, all reason with their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not. John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now this is John's portrait of Jesus. In verse 17, his winnowing fan is in his hand. He will thoroughly cleanse out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is the picture of Jesus. The picture of the Christ who is going to come. 
It's a very sobering message. If you heard that, would you be anxious to meet the Christ anytime soon? I don't know. But John's saying you better be ready because he's coming and you need to be prepared so that you are the wheat that's gathered into his barn, not the chaff that's, that's cast into the unquenchable fire. In verse 10, when, when John, John challenged him, he said, well, what should we do then? When he says you have to bring forth fruit in keeping the repentance. Verse 11, he answered and said to them, he who has two tunics... Let him give to him who has none. He who has food, let him do likewise. So imagine you're there listening to John the Baptist. He says, you have two tunics. Somebody else doesn't have any. What do you need to do? You have food. Somebody else doesn't have any. What do you need to do? He said, that's what you need to do to prepare for the coming of the Messiah. Because when he comes, if he finds there's no fruit in your life, he's going to be casting you into the the unquenchable fire. So, that's a pretty sobering picture of Jesus. A question for you, when Jesus appears on the scene after that and starts preaching, does he... Does he dial back the message? Does he tone down the message that John the Baptist was preaching? Sermon on the Mount begins. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's where Jesus starts off in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I want to flip to Luke chapter 6 and look at the other version of a very similar sermon. It's a a parallel account called the Sermon on the Plain. Most people would say poor in spirit, that means humble. Well, let's think about that when we read the account in the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 6 In verse 20, then he lifted up his eyes toward his disciples and said, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And then in verse 24, he draws a parallel. He says, the values of my kingdom are upside down the values of the world. The values of the kingdom, the things that will be blessed, are the poor the hungry, the weeping, and the rejected. They're the things I hold up in my kingdom. But he said, woe to the rich, the well-fed, the laughing, and the popular. Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Verse 24, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Is he talking about humility here? No, he's talking about wealth. Clement of Alexandria, an early Christian writer who's talking about this passage, uh, gives a good explanation of it. He talk, he's talking about the, the story of the rich man uh, uh, who was told to give up everything and, and related passages on wealth. He said, well, what does it mean to be poor or poor in spirit? He said, look, there's a lot of poor people who are greedy and who are materialistic and and are selfish. There's nothing 
spiritually a benefit just having nothing. He said the kind of poor in spirit, the kind of poverty that Jesus is holding up here, is those who are not attached to their wealth and possessions. They don't plan their lives around their things. They voluntarily and happily sell their possessions and give to the poor so that they can gain lasting possessions in heaven. He says that's what that's the poverty that Jesus is looking for here. Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And uh, verse 24, no one can serve two masters. He'll either, either he'll hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. That's New King James, or of course it will say God and money in the translation that most of you are reading. Jesus says it's impossible. You can't serve God and money. You've got to make a decision if you want to be part of Jesus' kingdom. The values of the kingdom are upside down the values of the world. people first come to be exposed to the gospel, what's the most likely Bible talk that they're going to receive? It's the parable of the four soils, the parable of the sower. We're trying to encourage people to get the word of God into their hearts and in their lives. It's the third soil that scares me the most. The third soil in Matthew 13, it's also in Mark and Luke. It says, the third soil is the soil, the the, the plant that grows up among the thorns. And Jesus explains, he says, the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Parallel passage in Luke chapter 8, Jesus says, those people who are choked out in the third soil... After the plant starts growing, it says they're choked with the cares, riches, and pleasures of life. I may be dating myself a bit here. The picture I have in my mind when I think about the third soil is from the old movie Jumanji. Okay? And there's one scene where they they roll the dice and something bad happens, and the next thing you know these vines come up out of the earth and start wrapping themselves around the people and strangling them to death. That's the picture of the third soil. And I really believe in in the church now, a lot of the people that are sitting around us are being pleasantly strangled, strangled to death by the love of money and pleasure and the pleasures of life and the cares of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches. We have to see this 
This is scarier than the Ebola virus. It's scarier than people being beheaded in other parts of the world. This is a much more dangerous and insidious disease. Spiritual disease that Jesus warned us about. The parable of the sower is for us to beware of the third soil right now where we are. In Luke 16, Jesus says, I better switch to the NIV for this one. Okay, Luke 16. Somebody likes the NIV, I guess. Huh? <laughs> Sorry about that. Luke 16, Jesus says in verse 9, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself, so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. If you have wealth in this life, it's there for a reason. There's something you're supposed to be doing with it. And it's not just entertaining yourself and pleasuring yourself until you're dead. We're supposed to use it to invest it in something that's going to, uh, that God's going to reward in eternity. That's what God, that's what God has given it to us for. There's a purpose for it. Use it to gain friends for itself. There was a, there was a belief in the early church that if someone gave money to someone who was poor or in need, that that person would then pray for the person who gave them the money. So you'd be gathering yourself a small army of prayer warriors, of widows and, and, and old people and poor people who'd be praying for you. So that's, that's the picture, that you're, you're gathering for yourself an army of people, uh, gaining friends for yourselves, that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. So how important is this? Can I really lose my salvation? Because of this, according to John the Baptist, according to what Jesus taught in the parable of sower, absolutely. Luke chapter 16, the story of the rich man Lazarus. Why is it in the Bible? What was the problem with the rich man? He didn't care about Lazarus. He was living a good, comfortable life himself and ignoring the guy who was at his gate. That's the point of the story. We can learn some things about Hades and what happens, but that's not why Jesus told the story. It's a warning to us not to follow in the steps of the rich man. Matthew chapter 24, at the end of chapter 24, Matthew 25, a passage, a section of scripture that's just tremendously important for all of us to, to, to reflect on. Because before Jesus is crucified, he lays out what he's going to be looking for in the disciples when he returns. He's coming back. And he wants people to be prepared to know exactly what he's looking for when he returns. In Matthew chapter 24, we start reading in verse 42. He says, Therefore keep watch. Because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch 
and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants of his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him so doing when he returns. I tell you the truth, he'll put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master's staying away a long time and begins to beat his fellow servants and eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come a day when he does not expect him and an hour when he's not aware of. He'll cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So we're the servant who's left behind with instructions. In verse 45, he says, Who is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of his servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? He's left us here and said, You feed the fellow servants. You take care of them. You take care of your brothers, the other servants. When he comes back, if he finds that you have, instead of doing that, you've neglected them, you've abused them, and you're out getting drunk, he says you're going to be cast into, and basically you're going to be cast into hellfire, obviously. So he's looking for, Jesus says he's going to be looking for two things when he comes back. First of all, were you taking care of your brothers like I told you to? Number one. Number two, are you, are you living holy, obedient lives? Or are you just going out and getting drunk? It's no mystery what Jesus is going to be looking for when he comes back. And Jesus continues with three stories. It ends with the, the Matthew 25, the story of the sheep and the goats. And I think we're all familiar with that passage. But it just, it just drives the same point home. 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul warns us. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. The love of money will destroy Christians. And he urges those who have to share and to use what they have to do good to help others. The picture that Jude and Peter use of destruction of the ungodly in the end, the classic picture is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah which were burnt to a crisp by God, by the judgment of God. Ezekiel 16 tells us, he says, what was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, obviously homosexuality, homosexual uh, 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 vice was, was uh, uh, an obvious sin in Sodom. But, th- but in Ezekiel it says the sin of Sodom was they were overfed, unconcerned, self-indulgent and did nothing to help the poor and needy. So, simple conclusion. Foundation for helping the poor and those in need, I believe, is simply what Jesus said is the second greatest commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Putting putting legs on that and putting that into practice. The greatest single obstacle in the church, I believe with all my heart, today, just as it was in the first century, when Jesus and Paul were speaking, is the sins of selfishness, self-indulgence, greed, materialism, the love of money, the love of pleasure. 
And the Bible has a lot to say about all those things. Jesus warns us that if we do not repent of these sins and call our brothers to do the same thing, He will reject us when He returns. So I want to encourage everyone here, take inventory of your own life. Take stock of your own church if you are a church leader. Be real about it. Be brutally honest. Okay, Take stock in terms of hours, in terms of dollars. Make a mental picture in your mind. Pile the number of hours or the number of dollars that you spend or that your church spends in the course of a year on vacations, pleasures, entertainment, hobbies, indulgences, travel. Think about that. Things that are just basically fun. I'm not, we went on a vacation this year, okay, I'm not, I don't have anybody particularly in mind here, but, but just, just think about that, make a pile of that in your own mind, then also make a pile of the time and money that you've devoted to meeting the needs of those who are poor and in need, okay? And if you're convicted by that, make some decisions to change your life. This isn't about making people feel guilty and depressed or anything, this is about if we need to repent, let's take a look at our lives and just repent. Give up on the American lifestyle of consumption and living for pleasure. It's revolting to God. What's highly esteemed by men is detestable in God's sight. We need to be living according to the teachings of the kingdom and not acting just like the world in the way we live. Look for examples and heroes to follow. There are many in this room. I know some of them and you know others of them. People who inspire me because they use their time, their money, their talent, their energy to pour out what they have to help, to help the poor. That encourages me. That inspires me. I'm also, people in my life, Richard Reinbolt was a medical missionary who inspired me. Uh, there's a Dr. Linderman in, in Albania, the same thing. People who, who use their skills where they could be making a whole lot more money to just meet the needs of others. In history, David Lipscomb, the great Church of Christ preacher, uh, William Law, Francis, many others. I look to examples of people that have exhibited that heart, and that calls me higher. And don't leave here guilted out. Think of what you can do. What can you do with the time, the energy, the talent that God has given you? There are vast needs and so you don't think just, well, I'm not a doctor, I'm not, uh, you know, I, I, I don't have this skill, I don't have that skill. Ask and you'll find there's all kinds of things that you can do. Um, amen. Thank you. Amen.